Que pasa, Mufasa? Welcome to the Micropreneur Podcast. I'm your host, Dennis Walker. We've got Paul Nolan in the house today. My psychedelic experience has only unfolded in the last six years or so. I'm a trained audio engineer by definition, and you know, it's all you know acoustics and physics and reductive sort of Western science. I went to it in a period of my life thinking, well, you know, I've learned all there is to know about music, and you know that very much was not the case. Put it that way. Like those first initial psychedelic experiences have been utterly transformative. I met Paul out in Miami and immediately hit it off with him. As always, thank you for joining us. Please consider rating and reviewing the podcast wherever you're listening. All right, everybody, let's get down to business. Okay, Pasa Mufasa, Paul Nolan, international DJ and head of Microdose Music. Welcome to the Micopreneur Podcast. How are things in Los Angeles today, Paul? Well, uh, I wouldn't know because I'm in Liverpool in the UK, but <laughs> Los Angeles, when I left it, was very, very cool indeed. Well, I, I mentioned that because I was invited by our mutual friend Cynthia to hang out with you in Los Angeles, but I was unavailable. So we're going to have to put a pin in that or I'm going to have to fly out to Liverpool. And I'm sure there's a Beatles museum there that I'd enjoy as well. So. One or two, one or two. Yeah, we've, we're known for that. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, I, I got to see you in action a couple weeks ago out in Miami at the Microdose conference. And uh, specifically, I saw you performing at the Maps at Maps after party that I recall. But I also know that there was a large event that you DJ that involved a, a beautiful brand new state of the art sound system. And one of the things I want to talk about is this idea that I've heard or this this practicality that I've heard from a lot of a number of electronic music producers who talk about the difficulty of translating a production from your studio into live music at the club because a lot of the club speakers maybe are not set up in a way that really preserve the nuance and the detail and the crispness and the fidelity. And so is that something that you've experienced? And is that something that you're working towards, you know, addressing to be able to have the beautiful work and sonic palette that you put so much time into adequately and accurately represented in a live environment and at the club. Dude, you are talking about 95% of the pain in my life, quite frankly, is trying to get things to sound in the club, how it sounded when it left the studio. That's kind of like my life, you know, and it's, it's all about translation at the end of the day. And, you know, I work in a number of different facets in the industry. So one of the big projects that I work with, I am a consultant and sort of an artist in residence, really, for a German production company or German manufacturer called DMB Audio Technic, who make sound systems, make some of the best sound systems in the world. And one thing that we've been working on, which is the system that I performed on at Wonderland, is an immersive audio system called uh, Soundscape. So Soundscape is the same sound system that the likes of Kraftwerk and Bjork use on tour. And I've been working with them for the last few years to try and adapt this surround sound technology into the club environment. And the whole reason behind it is because when you go to the club, you actually are hearing mostly a mono sound system still. You're still getting basically hit in the face with one channel of audio. And that makes the translation process from, you know, a couple of stereo speakers in a studio into a mono system in a club a little bit challenging sometimes. So what we're trying to do is not only preserve the nuance of what happens in the studio, we're trying to 
enter a whole new dimension. Very similar to when you go to a cinema, right? Where, you know, you go and see, I don't know, Top Gun Maverick or something like that, and it blows your head off with the sound system and the the, the surround sound and the whole experience is very evocative and very emotive. And for me, having worked in both film world and in the music industry, it never really made sense to me, like, why we just use the same old sound systems that have always worked for the last 30 or so years. So it's incredibly exciting to try and get people moving more into this immersive audio uh, world really which is being spearheaded in the home listening environment by the likes of Dolby Atmos which obviously you can use now on the likes of Apple Music, on Tidal, Amazon Music, that kind of thing. So people are becoming more aware of music in an immersive environment. So that's like the better part of my life's work at the moment or a big part of what I've been working on musically. So not only preserving that nuance, but being able to present it to people in a whole new way in the next five years are going to be incredibly transformational in that space. It's going to be incredible to follow that journey. For me, music became so dynamic, quite honestly, after I smoked weed for the first time. You know, I grew up in a musical family. I took piano lessons. Music was a thing, right? I was raised in the church. So like I was singing choirs and I was around this and like it was always a very spiritual experience. But I remember very viscerally the first time that I put on headphones when I was stoned, when I was about 17 or so, and listening to, it sounds so cliche, but like Stairway to Heaven and listening to, there's a, a musician I love named David Pajo who goes by Papa M. He's played with Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs and Interpol and, and so on and so forth. Wonderful producer, self-produces everything. I remember listening to Stairway to Heaven and Papa M and just hearing these crisp, dynamic details that I'd never heard before and really appreciating the production end of music. Before, I had always thought about like music as a life performance or like you hear a song on the radio but I was able to hear kind of those like ambient sounds and the background noises and that's something you mentioned Kraftwerk and Bjork I'm a huge fan of both artists and you know it's a dream of mine to see Bjork in concert uh, it's quite difficult these days because she's so popular but just that attention to detail is so important so it is a shame when it gets lost and you know you go there and just like let's let's go clubbing like there's something so much deeper so for me the psychedelic experience is heavily impacted and and catalyzed by music is that something that you've personally experienced as well oh absolutely uh, both directly and indirectly so my story is quite an interesting one where i started going clubbing in the back end of the 90s when the whole thing the first big breakthrough of electronic music in the uk and europe was really happening so i lived in liverpool and i'm from liverpool and i'm, I'm still here now as i've just mentioned but uh, about 10 minutes away from where i i lived and grew up there was one of the greatest nightclubs in the world called Cream. And we had all the best DJs in the world. People came from all over the world every week. And that was like my first real sort of spiritual breakthrough with electronic music. The only difference was is that I did it completely, shall we say, naturally aspirated. Uh, I was surrounded by people on MDMA and like really good MDMA as well you know that was a pretty famous time for for that substance and you know for my own reasons which we can get into i just decided not to interact with it but i had a natural you know relationship with music that really just moved through me in an incredible way and you know you put that in the context of being in a crowd with like three and a half thousand people all basically accepting each other for exactly who and what they are with absolutely no judgments and pretensions 
and then you put this incredible electronic music into play, then that that's a that's a gateway towards some incredible personal and collective breakthroughs. So that was a, a huge experience for me, and that's really what got me on the road to being a, a DJ, being somebody who makes music for a living, someone who develops talent and just immerses himself in music every day. And then later on, like my psychedelic experience has only unfolded in the last six years or so. And the first thing that I ever took that really shifted my consciousness in any massive way was was ayahuasca. And, you know, I'm a trained audio engineer by definition and you know, it's all, you know, acoustics and physics and reductive sort of Western science. And I went into it thinking, I went into it in a period of my life thinking, well, you know, I've learned all there is to know about music and, you know, that very much was not the case, put it that way. Like those first initial psychedelic experiences. And to be honest with you, almost every one that I've had since in the last six years of of being on that particular path have been utterly transformative and upgraded my understanding, appreciation, and also, you know, connection to music in a way that I didn't think was possible before. So it's quite an interesting thing now being a, a qualified sound therapist as well as an audio engineer. I kind of walk this middle path between something incredibly scientific and very quantifiable and very reductive, and then something that's incredibly mystical, intuitive, and kind of just a little bit in, you know, out there and a bit more sort of ill-defined. And walking a middle ground between those two places is incredible interesting I'll tell you that much I can agree that's a very pragmatic approach and well-framed and you know my father-in-law is an audio engineer who's been in business for 40 plus years so I've had a front row ticket to watching a you know really world-class professional work and like he's the type that buys Hammond organs that are broken and then fixes them them himself so like when you mentioned audio engineer I remember seeing him work thinking that I knew something about audio engineering. I'm like, whoa, the engineer part of that title is very accurate. Like you're an engineer. It's not just like you go in and you open up GarageBand and, you know, you record and you quanti- you know, quantize or whatever. Like there's a lot more to this. So, you know, it's very humbling to see someone who's just really good at their craft and see the attention to detail they put into it. But then that element of mysticism is something like, where does that fit in to this model we're doing? And for me, like a lot of the greatest musicians are able to bridge that gap. You know, I talk a lot about Radiohead on the podcast when music comes up. I'm a massive Radiohead fan. Bjork, you know, someone that is just really, uh, really out there with their music, but they're able to hone it and execute it in such a relatable way where it's almost pop music. You know, it's it's very distinctly uh, ethereal pop music to me. And I'm a big fan of that That type of production. So speaking of production, let's talk about EQ a little bit. And the reason I want to bring this up is I'm a big fan of Noah Shabib, who's popularly known as 40, Drake's producer, right? And I've, I've watched a number of interviews with him. And in one of the interviews, he mentioned that there's this tendency for a lot of audiophiles and especially young producers to get carried away buying gear. And they want to like buy all the gear because you think that like the more gear you buy, the better a producer you have. Right. And we've all been in these studios where they've got everything, all the bells and whistles. But Noah's advice was learn how to use an EQ, get as close to you can as mastering an EQ. And that's the first thing you should be doing as an audio engineer or as a producer. I'd be curious about in your process, what's the role of equalization? And is that something that you've you know, spent a lot of time in, in your world focusing on that? And do you have any other you know, addendums you'd like to add to that? Absolutely. I totally am I'm a big fan of Noah as well. Actually, I love his various interviews he did on Pensado's place 
which is a, a fantastic resource for anyone who wants to get really serious about production. On hardware and everything, I totally agree with him. And in fact, it, it kind of goes quite close to advice that I give to new artists is, you know, learn the tools that you've got in the box first. Like, don't even go out and buy any gear. Go out and actually understand what you've actually got in the box, whether it's Pro Tools or Ableton Live or Logic or whatever DAW you use. Garage Band, dude, like I've worked in some of the best studios in the world. I used to call the Village Studios in in uh, West LA my home, and that's where Smashing Pumpkins did Melancholy and you know, the Chili Peppers did Californication and I've produced some stuff out of there and, you know, the the commonalities of technique are all the same, right? And what I tend to do, and it's funny because I've learned a lot, I've learned almost everything that there is to know about EQ in terms of musical applications, technical applications, that kind of thing. And then I've evolved as both an engineer as an artist to basically throw all of it out of the window because actually what I say to everyone who's looking to learn this stuff, whether it's engineering or production, if you're spending too much time EQing something and correcting for something, then that's not a problem with the EQ, that's a problem with the sound itself. So I actually put the emphasis far more on capturing the source as close to how the finished article should sound before you even reach for the EQ. So the the kind of the mantra I always live by, this well, there's two mantras I always live by when it comes to EQ. One is optimization, not compensation. So again, it's about making a sound that already sounds good and making it sound like fucking amazing. And then it's also the, the mantra I was taught at audio engineering school, which is cut for clarity, boost for effect. And that has served me incredibly well because, you know, EQ, good use of EQ is always about creating space. It's not about correcting or compensating for a poorly recorded or a poorly captured source, essentially. So I put probably about 70 to 75% of my efforts in any sort of production on the raw sound source itself. Therefore, the EQ is incredibly simple. In fact, a lot of the time, it's just a little bit of filtering and a little bit of a nudge here and there, and that's it. So, you know, it's it's definitely, you know, a very easy one to overdo, especially early days. And you learn to, over time, get simpler and simpler and simpler to the point where you were almost hardly using the thing. Awesome. You know, I would, I got to say that the most inspiring studio I've ever been in is Daniel Lenoir's studio, if you're familiar with that name. And he's got an insane setup at his house in Los Angeles and he just does everything at his house. And so much of what he emphasizes comes down to capturing that spirit, like capturing the spirit. So when he was producing one of the U2 albums, he would have all of them sing together before they did anything. They would just have everybody you know, get in a circle and harmonize and sing together and get on the same page. And like, it was just, you know, hearing him break it down about the process and kind of seeing, you know, I was getting, I got to stand next to him while he was premiering some stuff he did with Venetian Snares, who's a wonderful artist from Canada and just so far out there. And this was during a period where he's doing a lot of pedal steel guitar, which I'm a huge fan of, but kind of like seeing that approach to it, 
Daniel Lenoir is, he has a very spiritual approach to what he's doing, right? It's, it's much more rooted in humanity and in, you know, getting on the same page, communicating and, and capturing that. And to the point where The Edge, who's of course the guitarist in U2, a lot of the guitar work that he was doing on Joshua Tree, I believe it was, it was actually captured through a hallway at Daniel Lenoir's house because they found a very warm sound they were looking for using that hallway. And it got to the point where when U2 was on tour, they were having their stages built to replicate the acoustic and audio dynamics of that hallway, which is just like, it shows that level of detail. And, you know, someone who produces a lot of my own stuff and I'm not as public facing with it anymore. I'd love for that to change one day. Like, that's what I'm always looking for is like, where is the magic? Where can you find and capture the magic instead of trying to create it? You know, you, you got to find it somehow and you got to, you know, so I guess that's my, my little bit on there, you know, but I appreciate you indulging me in that. So I want to switch gears and talk about your vinyl collection. I'm a huge vinyl collector. It's something, you know, I, I have to make the joke that like, I think most of my net worth is in my vinyl collection. You know, every city I go to, I pick up vinyl. And uh, so I would imagine you've got some vinyl and I would love to know if I go to your house and I grab a random handful of records from your vinyl, what might I find? Dude, you are going to be so disappointed. I literally two months ago sold my vinyl collection. I understand. It's yeah. not the first person who's told me that. Yeah. But yeah. I mean, <laughs> I didn't do it willingly. I will tell you that. And what I will say is in a, in a former life, I was essentially John Cusack in High Fidelity. That was my life for about two or three years where I worked in record shops. I owned a record store of my own for a couple of years, specializing in electronic music vinyl. And, you know, what I can tell you is I've had the strangest experience since selling the collection. I have actually realized that the vast majority of it is still up here. And I can still kind of visualize large parts of that collection and can summon them on command. So it's very strange. It's like this is a DJ's brain you're talking about here. A DJ's brain is pretty much just the biggest playlist ever, you know, ever assembled. And the ability to kind of link one thing to another thing becomes very, very strange, almost borderline surreal. So I do have, I do have, I sold around two and a half thousand pieces and I basically kept the 500 that I, you know, you'd have to prize them out of my cold dead hands, basically. And a lot of it is really sentimental, you know, early, well, early 2000s, late 90s trance that was part of the making of me uh there are some classic productions from and it's such a funny thing now because i look through them and it's like you know all of my heroes like on the dj side of things like sasha for example and uh people like that junkie xl like these are all people who i went on not only to work with these are people who i now consider to be friends of mine and if you'd have told me that when i first came into those records you know 25 years ago i wouldn't have believed you so you know there are those like really really rare sentimental pieces that you know really sort of represent my own journey through you know 25 years of electronic music both in this country also a lot of american imports as well because i loved the the west coast house scene around the early 2000s labels like greyhound records siesta uh, amazing artists like h foundation 
and just that really beautiful sort of hypnotic organic quite tribal house sound which i still love to this day so if you were to grab a random handful of what's left of my collection that is exactly what you'll find awesome yeah you know i've been learning more and more about it but uh having gone to school in san francisco i got to see a lot of touring artists right i got to see actress comes to mind as like someone who's kind of like a uk producer but i had friends you know, one of them has gone on to be on the Stone's Throw label, which you're probably familiar with. So there, you know, kind of there's a lot of overlap with like Warp Records and like more of this kind of ambient electronic experimentation. So back in college, I was listening to Boards of Canada, you know, and Aphex Twin, of course. And when you had mentioned earlier Smashing Pumpkins and Red Hot Chili Peppers, that's more what I cut my teeth on, you know, being a, you know, San Diego young man growing up listening to alternative radio. And I've gone on to not only see a lot of those artists, but, you know, get to meet a bunch of them too, which has been great and these days like i'm really trying to push the envelope by finding more eclectic like international global sounds right so that's one of the things when i when i travel i always find a record store and i go for the stuff i've never heard of you know i want to grab local artists i want to grab stuff my ultimate goal is to find as much stuff that's not digitized as possible because you know you're buying you know something up an old record from the soviet union that you found that has you know choirs on it and and i like to sample some of that stuff i think it's fun and you know and i i digitize them too i have one of those you know usb connections with my record player so i found a number of records like i was over in new delhi india and i had to go through you know through the back of a shoe repair shop and up a flight of stairs to get to the record shop and i'm pulling rajasthani folk music and like you know field recordings of of polo games and and uh Kathmandu. and i'm like this is amazing like where is this on the internet so something that you know is very important to me is to like this this idea of archiving and of preserving and digitizing and that's something we could talk about you know in the future so one thing that i i I'd love to dive into at this moment is let's talk about this microdose music record label that you're involved with. It's something that is being rolled out in the near future. We got to chat about it a little bit in Miami, but what's going on with microdose music and when can we expect to start seeing some events that we can all attend? Yeah, so at the moment, we've obviously made the official announcement. I did the first performance of an album that I've put together, which will be the first release on microdose music so that's what i performed on the dmb soundscape system i also integrate uh, audio reactive visuals using a platform called volta uh, which actually you know the whole thing is meant to be an integrated and immersive experience so microdose music is a specific record label for music that is primarily meant for psychedelic therapy so it's kind of a first of its kind label because you know the guys at Microdose, Richard Scaife, who I'm working with on it incredibly closely, and also Nick Earls, who DJed with me at the MAPS fundraiser that you mentioned earlier, which was possibly one of the most fun gigs of my entire career, if I'm being completely honest with you. I'm still trying to recover from that gig, if I'm being honest. Um, where the three of us came together and, and worked out that actually there's, there's, a, there's a big hole here in the the need for music that's specifically created for guiding people through psychedelic experiences and obviously there's artists like john hopkins who you know literally made an album called music for psychedelic therapy but this music has been in existence for quite some time you know if you roll in various conscious communities and stuff like that you'll hear a lot of it played at ceremonies you'll hear it you know played in like sort of almost a dj format 
uh, at certain points in time as well so we really want to tap into that and and curate and really try and be a bit of a tastemaker in that area but also make music much more accessible to therapists because you know my, it was my first time at wonderland and you know it was such an amazing experience being around so many people who were so aligned in you know this sort of nascent movement that's happening but the main thing i heard from people who were conducting psychedelic therapy is that the biggest thing that they're struggling with is music and their exact words a lot of the times were, well, look, Paul, you know, we're therapists, we're not DJs, we're not very good at curating music. And, you know, we heard things like, say, for example, you know, certain modalities, you know, ex expressly only allow therapists to use things like classical music. And it's like, well, that's great if classical music is your jam and that's what speaks to you. But that's not the case all the time, right? So, you know, for us, it's about making incredible music made with that specific intention available to, you know, make it available to therapists as well as people who can listen to it and use it for their own functional purposes as well, whether it's meditation, yoga, anything like that at all so yeah that that's kind of the the idea behind the whole label so you know diving into uh, let's round out a little bit now you know we're kind of hitting the sweet spot but i guess one of the things that i wanted to ask you about is you know some of the projects that you're involved with that you can speak about what are some other things coming out of the paul nolan sound universe that people can look forward to well yeah i mean there's a lot there's a lot going on because you know, as i say with uh Everything that happened, uh, Microdose, uh, Wonderland, you know, it's been an amazing opportunity to kind of show people what I've been doing and it's kind of opening a lot of doors. So, you know, actually I'm, I'm very heavily involved in a number of projects which aren't going to bear fruit until next year. So one of the things that we're going to work on is I'm working on touring the album, which again, you mentioned like events in Microdose music, like that's kind of what we're looking towards where you know i've had some offers to go and play the live show and do some album playbacks at festivals next year that's something that i'm actively working on and actually one of the things that looks very very likely for next year is going to be a hell of a lot of djing a hell of a lot and you know, i think the uh the maps fundraiser in miami has a lot to answer for because it was just such a that's one of the wildest parties i've played in a long time in a, in, a, in an amazing way and you know as i say like halfway through that party i looked up and you know it's a three-hour set that i'm playing and one of the most surreal moments of my entire career i look up and in the corner there's paul stamets and rick doblin dancing like there's no tomorrow and it's like yeah this this yeah shit's gone pretty weird here this has been a bit of a wild week and then off the back of that that's come you know a lot of uh, dj opportunities so you know i'm gonna be uh, stretching my legs quite a lot having taken you know by force two years off the road so the touring schedule is looking pretty busy the studio schedule is looking really busy you know there's a there's another record label that i'm looking to launch next year because i own a platform where we develop and incubate talent and that's a specific record label to release the members of my platform which is called myt make your transition I'm looking to release a lot of their music next year because I've got about 250 artists on on the books there at the moment and they are all 
making incredible music so it's not just about my own ambitions as an artist it's about launching all these incredibly beautiful people in this community to the next level in their careers as well and, and creating containers where we can all collaborate together and make the next steps and, and hopefully be a bit of a, a force for positive transformation in the electronic music industry and beyond basically so i've got more than enough to keep me out of trouble dennis Phenomenal. Well, thank you so much, Paul Nolan, international DJ and artist development specialist for coming onto the Micropreneur podcast. It's been a pleasure. You're welcome anytime and we'll be following your career with great interest. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Dennis. Really enjoyed it. And that is a wrap. Thank you for sticking around to the bitter end. It's very sweet of you to commit so thoroughly. Don't be a stranger. Let me know what you thought of this episode and please consider checking out the substantial backlog while you're at it. You can reach out to me via email, micopreneur at gmail.com or hit me on any of the numerous social platforms that I'm currently active on. At Micopreneur Podcast is the handle on Instagram and Twitter. Thank you all very much for sticking around. Have a wonderful day. I'll see you back here next week on the Micopreneur Podcast.